Before we start the episode, our blog is back. Check it out at blog.specscast.com for show notes to this episode and a few other articles we've written. Thanks. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside Drew. Howdy. And TJ. Hello. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPECS, a student-faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we dive into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPECS and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. Today, we'll be diving into a few hot topics in the space industry. Please let us know what topics you would like us to discuss in the future by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email at specscast at gmail.com. So, engineering space to be useful to humans is hard work. Today on Specscast, we sit down to discuss two space satellite networks, GOES and Starlink, and how they help humanity during our day-to-day lives. But we're also covering two examples of the challenges of space engineering, the VA-241 anomaly on Ariane 5, and new delays and cost overruns for the James Webb Space Telescope. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Phil? I'm doing okay. I'm getting the coffee's kicking in. Let's go. First up is the GOES uh, satellite launch. This is the Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite System. Uh, so these are North American weather monitoring satellites. And these were the reason we're talking about this is that on March 1st, a few days ago, ULA launched GOES S, which is part of the next generation uh, satellite system for GOES. So they have upgraded sensors, upgraded capabilities, uh, and the end goal is something that benefits us every day. It helps us predict the weather, uh, helps us track hurricanes and other natural disasters, and just generally helps us uh, not go outside when it's about to rain uh, without an umbrella. Yeah, um, a few months ago, GOES-R was launched uh, by ULA-2, and this one that just launched was GOES-S, and the way I understand it, GOES-R basically covers the East Coast, and GOES-S covers the West Coast, or gives like high-quality data for those two sides of the continental United States. Um, yeah, if you look at a map super... of their coverage, they're in geostationary orbit, and their sensors cover roughly a ellipse uh, that runs north to south. So they cover most of North America and parts of South America, um, but because of their inclination, inclination zero, um, they don't handle the far upper reaches of Canada, and they don't handle the far bottom parts of South America. So it covers most of the United States, most of Canada, but it also has data for the rest of Central America and North South America, which we share to those countries for their own weather forecasting. Yeah, and these uh, satellites are important, I guess, because they have... So, PR aside, aren't they some of the most advanced um, weather satellites that are being used right now? Well, the new GOES R series uh, are our next generation weather satellites. Um, so we've had a long series of GOES satellites. 
Um, but other countries have actually launched newer, more advanced satellites in recent years. Uh, and primarily they get higher resolution data and higher data updates. Because what ends up happening with these is all the data that they collect gets sent down and then that gets put into weather models. And the, the better quality data you have and the more data points you have, the more accurate that weather model can be. So currently, Europeans weather satellites can do up to 10 or uh, 10 minutes between updates, uh, which gives you a finer resolution in your model. The prior Go satellites could do 15 minutes. So it doesn't seem like a big difference, but that's a 50% increase. And when you're tracking something over hours or days, that's a ton more data points to help you track. So the new uh, next generation of these satellites matches that 10 uh, minute update cycle and also has updated imaging so for higher resolution and better data collection. Right. And so when we think about a satellite, Earth imaging satellite or Earth observation satellite, um, to be specific, as far as like, I'm concerned when I form a picture of these in my mind, I think of something that's basically a camera pointed at Earth. But um, I think these GOES satellites are a great example of how that's not exactly the case. So GOES has uh, many instruments aboard. Um, the two primary ones are its imager. So the, the imager can see um, infrared light, which humans can't see. It's more red than our eyes can see. But um, infrared light is really good at being not only reflected off the ground, but things when things are warm, when things are um, heat up. It measures temperature. Yeah. Right? So a big part of weather is atmospheric temperature. And so the imager with infrared can kind of do, for an area, the average infrared energy of that area. Right? So if you took uh, like a weather... Like a, map the United States that had a heat map, that would be some kind of the data that the imager would give you. Where for a given area, the average temperature is this value because that's the value that gets reflected back to the sensor. The other part of that is visible reflected solar energy, and that relates to albedo, which is how reflective the Earth's surface is. Um, so when you treat Earth as sphere, things like snow, things like the color of the ground, uh, the uh, whether it's water versus uh, earth, uh, and also clouds all affect the albedo, which is how much of that incoming solar energy just gets bounced back before entering the system. Uh, so that's something that's really important to track as polar ice caps uh, change dimensions, uh, as the makeup of the atmosphere changes, those values change over time. Uh, so those are kind of your big picture at a glance average of the system. But the second instrument is kind of even more interesting. Uh, Phil mentioned that's the sounder. And that allows for vertical data. So instead of taking the average of like a 10 by 10 kilometer block, you now can see through altitude how different properties are changing. And that covers uh, atmospheric temperature, moisture, uh, and surface and cloud temperature, and also ozone. So those are other variables that are really important to track because, as we know, the temperature here at sea level or on the surface is wildly different than at 10,000 feet or 100,000 feet. So being able to get that uh, multi, multi-dimensional reading 
really helps those models unless you track more advanced weather patterns like hurricanes or low pressure fronts high pressure fronts things like that and also ozone which is uh, something that is no longer a crisis uh, back in the late 90s we had the ozone hole and ozone layer depletion um, scare but that's a critical thing in measuring um, solar uh, uv uh, input to the surface so if you ever see the uv index for today of hey you should really wear sunscreen it's going to be a sunny day out things like that some of that data comes from the sensor uh, because it depends on how much uv rays make it to the ground which you can't just tell from oh it's sunny outside it's cloudy outside uh, because those are not visible to the human eye if you're interested in more information about goes uh, specifically the sounder instrument, you can go to NOAA's website. I don't know if we mentioned this, but the GO satellites are operated by NOAA, which is the uh, United States uh, National Oceanic, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So NASA was in charge of uh, contracting out the design of these satellites, uh, and then NOAA actually operates them. But on their website, they have a lot of information about all of these different instruments on on the satellite. So the sounder has 19 channels. These are different wavelengths that it views at. So it has 19 different wavelengths it can observe at, and that's how it stacks up that, that vertical data. Uh, it also has one visible channel, but most of it's infrared. And you can actually, like, it's super cool that they put all this information out there. You can actually see those specific wavelengths and get, um, there's a few, like, technical diagrams of the instrument itself on the NOAA website. Yeah, and something that Specs has done in the past is that these satellites broadcast their data on unencrypted frequencies. Um, so if you build your own antenna uh, and use relatively easy software, uh, you can just receive this data packet from the satellite because they're geostationary, they're fixed above the U.S. Uh, and for what we got, we were able to get a image of half of the U.S., a cloud cover map, and I believe a ozone map. Um, so that's something that probably if you know if you have high school students, that's a project they could whip out in like a week of building the antenna and plugging it into a computer. Um, and if you're just interested in communicating with satellites, it's something that is fun to do and doesn't require very expensive equipment. You can get a very cheap software-defined radio now for under fifty bucks. And the materials for the antenna for probably under twenty. That sounds like a cool project to do with a Raspberry Pi. I might try that myself. Is that what I remember for specs when you built that thing? That was a hackathon. You and a couple people um, received data from a freaking satellite, um, <laughs> like useful data um, during a yeah, hackathon. Yeah, the, the first so one was an Arduino with just a simple wire antenna, uh, just like about a foot and a half long. Uh, and you take that and you get a very blurry image because you're operating in the analog domain, so you're losing data and you're not going to get the most clear, less fuzzy picture. Uh, but they eventually built a helical antenna. I was thinking Yagi. Those are uh, perpendicular spikes along the center core. Helical has two wires wrapped around the center core. And that's a directional antenna, which really ups your game, and they were able to get very crisp photos from that. Yeah, that sounds like a super fun project. Um, the last thing uh, about the GOES spacecraft, though, is that, um, I mean, it also has even more 
instrument packages. There's magnetometer, an X-ray sensor, um, a high-energy proton and alpha particle detector, and and things on board, so it can detect these more high-energy things, and also variation in um, the Earth's magnetic field while it sits up there, geostationary orbit. One thing, yeah, before we transition, um, the video for the launch was really, really cool. Uh, this was an Atlas V five four one. Uh, so that's four solid rocket boosters and one engine on the Centaur. And because it was geostationary, this launched from Cape Canaveral and with within a thousand feet had already begun its gravity turn. So you can see it just a very abrupt tilt from vertical and then just starts going, uh, heading eastward, uh, which is kind of dramatic. You don't get to see that on every launch. Uh, so it's really beautiful. Also, the props to the photographers who had set up remote cameras, uh, because the pictures, when you have the RD-180 matched with solid rocket boosters, there's a ton of really awesome contrast and just visual, lots of interesting visuals uh, in those photos. So go out, go and seek out those photographers. They do awesome work, and it looks beautiful. Yeah. The the five in the five four one um configuration also means a five meter fairing too. Um so five meters in diameter, which is huge. Yeah, the proportions on that rocket launch looked bizarre, but I mean that that's what was necessary to hold this this satellite, but it just looks really squat even though it's not. Yeah. You need a person standing next to it for, for real perspective. Uh there's this is unrelated to GOES, but Similar to what GOES does in terms of the providing weather data and providing information you can just get for free, there's a, a NASA app that I think is run by JPL. Um, it may just be NASA itself, but it's called Earth Now, and it has a whole bunch of satellites that it gets data from that you can then look at the Earth in visible, and it can show you like up to a week ago. So right now I can see, I can play fast forwarded the the bomb cyclone that just hit the northeast United States again, um, where we just we had no snow on the ground for a week. It was in the 60s, and then we just got hit by about a foot of snow. Uh, and I can watch that progress up through the United States and then cover New York, uh, which is pretty cool that you can do that. But it also has a bunch of other non-visible uh, vital signs, what they call. So you can check temperature, carbon dioxide, um, carbon monoxide, the gravity field, sea level, a whole bunch of things. So Earth Now is a cool app if you ever want to just explore around the Earth and see all these satellites that are contributing to to the the, the health of the planet. Yeah, so let's transition to uh, SpaceX's recent payloads. So, um, yeah, recent payload PAS um, launched on February 22nd, and the part I want to talk about is its secondary payload it's, it's hitchhiker payload um and we've we've talked about spacex's satellite constellation in the past and starlink is that constellation their first two prototype constellation satellites were the secondary payload for the past launch um so to recap starlink is the name spacex has given to their um proposed satellite network that intends to give gigabit broadband coverage to the entire world, basically, using 
an insane number of satellites. Um, the first pass would be 4,425 satellites at uh, 1,200 kilometers up. Um, and like this, you know, version two, I guess, or the upgraded long-term goal would be an additional 7,518 satellites at 340 kilometers up. Um, Which combined, those that's nearly 12,000 satellites that they're proposing to launch. Yeah. And that that's so many. I think that's more than we currently have in LEO anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, that sounds like a lot too, but, and like people get worried about Kessler syndrome and, and space junk and stuff. But kind of when you zoom in, yes, it can be a problem but there's also a lot of space up there. <laughs> um, I really, I wanted to do a research topic on this for our Astro, um, Specs has an Astro Club, uh, where we do astro tracking and astrodynamics and astrophotography. And I wanted to kind of do a research project in this that I'm going to propose that future students do, which is determining at what point would the amount of satellites and space junk become a problem for launches that needed to leave Earth, Earth's atmosphere. Um, if you remember, if you ever saw Wally, when he rides on the ship out off Earth, they pass through a, a layer of satellites that the ship has to break through. Like that, that would be way more than twelve thousand satellites. Twelve thousand satellites, you'll probably be able to see a satellite um, at any one time, but there is a lot of volume above us, a lot of surface area that satellites would need to cover. So, I don't think it, it's this number is not that many. Also with these satellites, uh, the 4,000 are at 750 miles. Uh, so that's still within a somewhat significant atmospheric drag effect. So they will deorbit eventually. And the large batch, the 7,000 plus, are at 210 miles. And so they're experiencing appreciable atmospheric drag. And the design actually calls for Hall effect thrusters to be con constantly firing to counteract the atmospheric drag and so with that case yes we're putting up a bunch of satellites but uh, when those run out of fuel they run out of power they'll deorbit relatively quickly and it's one of those things where uh, it's designed to be constantly replaced it's not going to be like iridium which got put up and then lasted for 20-30 years uh, these are going to be lifespans of 5-10 to 10 years with a constant stream of new satellites uh, from a mass-produced facility so let's talk let's get a little bit specific about these Starlink satellites. Um they're nicknamed Tintin A and B, and they're pretty small, I think. They're about what, a meter wide or something like that? They can fit on basically a big workbench in your garage, I think. That's how big it looks in the pictures. Yeah, they use all effect thrusters for station keeping. But what, what actually are they going to be doing? Why, and why did they have to launch two? Yeah, so these are demonstration satellites. So these are not uh, production satellites. Uh, there's been some speculation about how they're different and they might be missing some antennas. Uh, but it's actually really important that they launch two. So part of the system is the ground-to-space link. So from a user terminal to the satellite but also a feature of this constellation is the inter-satellite link. So they want to use optimal communication, so lasers, uh, pretty much the same stuff they could send over fiber optic, except instead of 
going through a glass medium goes through a vacuum so that the satellites can communicate at high throughput. And so with these two satellites, they have those optical receivers and transmitters so they can communicate to each other. And they also have the radio antennas to communicate to the ground station. So SpaceX is using the Musk family umbrella for its ground station. So uh, the Tesla headquarters in Fremont has a ground station. The satellite uh, production center in Washington has an antenna as well as Hawthorne. So that gives them multiple ground stations to link against. And the rumored plan is to send packets from one ground station to a satellite, from satellite A to satellite B, and then from satellite B down to another ground station to test uh, the integrity and speed of those links and to prove out a lot of the custom hardware. Because if you remember, years ago, SpaceX hired custom hardware engineers to develop chips that can handle the data processing and the networking between a moving constellation of satellites around the Earth. Yeah, and um, the reason for the linking between the two satellites instead of one just like taking a request from one station and sending information to the other is is the whole reason for this constellation. And the way the internet works now is your computer connects to, you know, your internet service providers networks and they your signal gets bounced around and that's why people in Australia have it takes, you know, four hundred milliseconds for the game server that they're playing on to respond or more because it gets bounced around um, all these different areas. So your request would go up to the satellite, bounce off all these other satellites that are connected via laser. So that time for the signal to travel would be at the speed of light. Can go, you know, I guess around the globe and then back down. Yeah, currently uh, in a fiber optic network, which is what those undersea cables and large trunk connections are made out of, in fiber optic, because it's glass, you're getting about a 30% decrease in speed compared to the speed of light in a vacuum. And so if you can make a path that goes from ground to space across a larger sphere of the Earth and then back down, as long as that path is uh, less than 30% longer, you're going to get a faster connection. Cool. Um, you have uh, a few notes um, here in our, in our outline. Uh, that are Elon Musk's comments from February 25th. Um, he makes two comments that are really interesting to me about... Um, it. He says, It'll be simpler than IPv6 and a tiny packet overhead. Definitely peer-to-peer. And he also said that there will be end-to-end encryption encoded at the firmware, firmware level. Um, TJ, can you explain like what, what he means here? Um, what... So IPv6 is IPv6 is your computer's address and basically how it identifies to the internet. Um, but what does he mean yeah, by packet so, overhead and peer to peer? So IPv6 is the follow-up standard to IPv4. So that is Internet Protocol version four, version six. So for most of the internet's lifespan we've been using ipv4 so if you ever seen those five segmented uh ip addresses with up to three number or three digits per number that is an ipv4 address and i don't know the size off the top of the head but it can 
contain billions and billions of addresses. And unfortunately, we have more than billions and billions of computers on Earth. When you go between every server, every smartphone, all the IoT devices in your home, etc., we don't have uh, enough addresses. So the tech industries have had to implement a bunch of hacks. Um, so something called NATs, where your whole house or your whole office might have one IP address, and then the router tells every computer in the building, you have this IP address, this one, this one, this one, and then it makes sure that all the outgoing requests go from the single IP address and they come back, and they come back to the right computer. So it works, obviously. We have all these devices in our homes. It works well enough, and the internet has been able to continue to grow. However, there was this push for what if we change the standard, make a better standard, uh, IPv6, which has a longer address um, that's not human readable. Well, none of them are human readable, but even harder to remember. Uh, and use IPv6, and with this much larger number per each address, we can have trillions and trillions of devices, and suddenly every computer can have an individually addressable number, just like an address, right? When you're, uh, you have your street address, street, city, zip code, etc. all those elements lets the postal service route a message between you and another person uh, because they're unique. Uh, that's what IPv6 hopes to bring back because uh, we lost that in the early days of the internet. Uh, however, IPv6 is not widely adopted. Uh, some sites use it, some sites don't, and it's just been a very slow, hard transition, uh, and it's because there's just so many legacy computers out there. So, uh, it would be great to have this, but it's we're still years or decades away. So what does it mean that Elon says that Starlink will be simpler than IPv6? Mm -hmm. So what he's talking about with packet overhead is the way uh, TCP slash IP uh, works. So with TCP or how a web browser works, it's going to get a little technical. How a web browser works is I want to go to a website, specs.rt.edu. And my server sends a request, and it's usually one packet in size because they're small requests. But it goes to our server and says, I want this document. And it has our return IP address, so the computer to send it back to, um, and the document that we want to get, which is the page of the website. However, usually with a web page, you've got images and text. It can't fit into one packet or one bundle of data. And that has to get split up. And with TCP, you have guaranteed ordering. So say you have an image and you split that image up into 10 or 100 uh, packets. Every packet has to have a header, which says at the very basics where it came from, where it's going. It also tends to have a uh, tracker of what computers it bounced around before it got to you, uh, and some extra overhead in there. And then the data, which is going to be ones and zeros that make up the image. And all, also that packet has an ordering number, whether it's the first, the last, or one of them in the middle. And so when your computer does, when it talks over TCP, 
is that it makes that request, packets start coming back, and the internet is not point to point. Uh, basically, we have thousands of computers that act as routers uh, that have a no they know what they're connected to generally. Uh, and so they don't have no single point in the network has knowledge of every other single point in the network, which is important. And so when I send data or our web server sends data, it goes to the nearest router. That router makes a educated guess of which router it should send the packet to to get back to us, and they bounce around. And so not every packet will go to every other, the same router. Then they'll bounce around this whole network and eventually get back to our computer. And if you don't take the same path, then physics starts to come in. You don't arrive in the same time. And then TCP, because each packet is ordered, will then rearrange them in the right order, take the payload of the top left very first pixel to the bottom right very last pixel, and take all the data and then present that image to you. So that's a very high level, very simplified uh, description of how TCP works. But the important thing is for large amounts of data, audio, pictures, large websites, things have to be broken up over multiple packets. And every time you make a cut, you duplicate the header. And so you have more and more overhead on that data. So uh, from these tweets, having a different system where if you have complete control of the routers and you know exactly where all of them are relatively to each other, uh, you can make a more optimized network where instead of having to have this agnostic works on any device everywhere for billions and trillions of computers, you can make a simpler, smaller packet that wraps the data entirely. Uh, and that way you can just have be more efficient, have higher useful bandwidth because the headers that you receive is garbage uh, for like, they don't make up the image, they don't make up the web page, those just get discarded, it's the payload that matters. Um, so you can optimize the uh, protocol in a sense uh, to be more efficient. But that you have to have complete control over the system, which is what we don't have, right? The internet's not owned by one company with one type of hardware. It's hundreds of companies following published standards. Right. So um, to bring this into a, a simplified analogy, is this like instead of writing a letter by mail, like a postcard where you need your full return address and the person's full address, including the zip code and everything, and basically saying, okay, instead of going through the postal service, which will mail it to that post office and then that post office and then put it on the plane, blah, blah, blah we would switch to something where you all work for the same company so you can just specify your desk location. Like, um, your desk location would be like B7348, and that's the unique identifier for my desk, and put that in the system, and then it would, since it's all by the same company and all the same system and doesn't, not generalize, it can go directly to you, and that way it's faster. Exactly. So that's that's part of the addressing part. Another analogy is if I was trying to send Phil you a book, but I could only send single page letters. So I had to take a book, 200, 300 pages, tear out every page, mail each uh, page and put those separately. Into envelopes 
I have to send you 200 to 300 envelopes to you. And mm. everyone in the world has agreed to use this size envelope that has this address on the top. And if you put that into a street post box or your house post box, it'll get to the destination as long as that address is correct. Mm-hmm. But you're sending 300 envelopes, right? That's a lot of waste. Mm-hmm. But if you make your own standard, uh, say like UPS, um, they still use the same addressing system, but instead of using standard letter envelopes, you can have a box or even something large enough, I can take the full bound book, then I can send you one package, it goes to the entire routing system once, and mm-hmm. you get your book in one piece or in uh, larger chunks. So they can define their own addressing system and also their own mailbox <laughs> type, I guess. Yeah, and from a programmer perspective, you can create whatever network standard you want. So TCP IP is one, and that's what most of the internet's built upon. But UDP is another standard, and before the internet became the default standard for everything for networks, companies would build up their own standards where they have a copper wire between two computers, and they say, we're going to have... When we send these bits, that means something, and then we're going to send this kind of data in this way. And before we had all these competing standards that had different advantages and disadvantages, now we have some of these more global standards. TCP IP, if I know the IP address of your computer, or in many cases the domain name system, which puts a nice human-readable name in front of an IP address, if I know your domain name, I can send you something. And it will go across potentially tens, hundreds, thousands of computers, and it will get to your computer. And I'll have a guarantee that they come in the same, the correct order, and a some, somewhat kind of guarantee that they're guaranteed to deliver, or I'll get an error message. I I have a couple questions, follow-up questions for this. Um, the first is that okay, defining your own standard is fine. Um, having a standard that's different from the more accepted IPv4, IPv6 things, um, and also being peer-to-peer, um, which Elon uh, mentions Starlink would be, does this mean, like, how does, if, so the way peer-to-peer works in my head is that if everyone's sort of hooked up to the same system, like if you're having a LAN party, um, and all your computers are connected to each other, um, directly, basically, you can all share information with each other, um, or multiple people can contribute instead of like having one central hub. Um, does this mean that Starlink won't be compatible? Like, would you only be able to talk to other computers that are also using Starlink? So, from these two tweets, we don't know, but the way this usually works on other kinds of these networks is they'll have a ground station, which will appear to the internet as just a normal router in your house, right? Or a modem, more traditionally a modem. And the router will have an IP address, it'll send a packet, and what that modem will do is it'll take that and then wrap that uh, header and IP, uh, IP header and packet in its own header. And so it goes from having a header and payload to just 
a new header and a new payload that's larger, and you just don't care what's in the payload. So as, as and that as header can... is their own standard. And so, so those packets go through whatever network, they come out another gateway on the ground, and then they rejoin the public internet, and then they're treated just like another IP packet. So it's like a carpooling. Like you, you go and you connect to these ground stations normally, like you would connect to any other um, internet service provider. But then once you your signal gets to the ground station, it shortcuts through the constellation, the spacecraft constellation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, like for in for implementations like that, you have for all intents and purposes a modem. And that gives you a connection to the internet and you send data through that and it comes back and that separate protocol is completely opaque to you and none of your programs change, none of your computers change, uh, you're just going to have hardware. And I'd assume when we get the ground station antennas, those pizza box sized stations, they'll have an Ethernet port and you plug that into a Wi-Fi router and you can connect your phone, your laptop and... I would assume it will just work. Uh, famous last words, but that's how uh, other satellite services work. It's like satellite internet. Now, what I'm interested in is the idea that all of these are going to be communicating with each other via laser. Because I don't think that's typical, correct me if I'm wrong, but most things use radio, which you can be a lot less, you don't have to be as directional. So I wonder how well these are going to have to station keep, or not station keep, but um, keep their orientation so that they can communicate with all of their co-satellites. Yeah, it's laser communications is a really popular field, and even 10 years ago it wasn't a super proven technology. But we've seen the ISS has a laser communicator uh, that they can send and receive data at very high throughputs. Lady, which was a satellite that went to the moon, could send data via laser from the moon to Earth. Uh, and they're looking at adding laser communications to probes going farther away because that lets us have way more bandwidth so we can send better, more video, more scientific data, uh, and just get more uh, value from a satellite. Yeah, I've, So it's something that's been evolving relatively quickly. I've just looked up um, the Wikipedia page, laser communications relay demonstration. And this is what they would be. They'd be laser communicating, um, relaying the information between each other. Um, and I think it's funny that, TJ, you just kind of like off the cuff summarize this entire page, including the missions. Um, so, yeah, there's... We did work on a laser communication project at Specs. That's true. Um, the interesting thing to me is that um, one thing I look at when I look at Wikipedia is the references, um, the citations that point to all these things. And they're all dated... 2000, the oldest one is 2012. Most of them are around 2014, um, like white papers and, and research papers. So this is a pretty new technology, and I don't think, like, it's not unheard of, but it's not widely used either. And a big part of this is they're trying to use existing technology and techniques from our existing fiber optic network, right? We have photodiodes, which take laser pulses and turn them back into electrical signals, which we use for data. And we have laser emitters. And the thing with space, and what they're doing is doing direct line of sight laser links between satellites, 
but not doing laser links between ground stations and satellites because when you're on the Earth, there's two things that cause a problem with laser communications. One is the atmosphere. Uh, clouds and water can absorb different bandwidths or um, frequencies of, of light. Uh, so a very popular one is uh, 1250 nanometers, which has the least absorption for the atmosphere. So that helps it work during cloudy and stormy weather and negates the atmosphere a bit. The other thing is just beam width, right? We have a super tiny, focused, powerful laser, and the laser is uh, light that has all been culminated to uh, move in a single direction rather than random directions like a light bulb or a black body emits. You take that, and with a laser pointer, it shows up as a tight dot on the wall, right? But when you shine that a mile, that dot is now a circle, and if you shoot that laser 200 miles or 1,000 miles, that circle is now the size of a football field or a city block or larger. And that laser is still emitting the same amount of photons per second uh, in the beam, and those photons are spreading out. And so you go from, if I shoot a laser at someone, it'll damage their eye, to I shoot a laser at a satellite, and you're lucky to get one photon hitting the sensor, or a dozen photons. So it's a really interesting challenge. You can improve that with mirrors and stuff to line up uh, the the rays of light to be straighter than if you were to just, you know, prick a hole um, in, a, in a sphere covering a light bulb. Um, but even then, like, but no that's laser beam is perfect, and over that distance, exactly. it spreads out. Exactly. And tracking a fast moving satellite, the closer you get, because these satellites are closer to the Earth's surface, the closer you get, the faster the apparent motion on the ground. And so those laser uh, communications stations have to track very, very quickly. And that's why they went with phased array radars, because you can have a static, flat piece of PCB with these antennas. And through computer computer control, you can direct the antenna. And so there's no moving parts required as long as it's facing in a 180-degree field of view of the satellites. Phased array is super interesting. I think we're going to have to get into that another time, though. Um, there's one more Starlink topic I wanted to bring up, and that is encryption. Um, Elon... Um, mentioned that end-to-end -end encryption would be encoded at a firmware level and that if there was like a vulnerability or something they could push an update that would just be a firmware update for their satellites and that would fix their encryption protocol um so what what does so this is encryption is i mean layman's terms basically like when you make it a, you give it a password or something. It's unreadable unless you have the key. So what does it mean that it's going to be firmware? And Is this significant or is this just interesting? So uh, firmware level versus what you usually do be an application level. So think of it like this. If you, on a Windows computer, save something as a zip file, you have the option of doing a password protection lock on it. And so what that does is there's dozens and dozens of cryptographic techniques of taking a known password or a known key and scrambling the data so that it doesn't look like data. You can't put it into the same program and see an image or see a document unless you run it through the same 
system with that key to make it whole again. But you can do that on Windows, and then you can send that en encrypted zip file over email, right? And so when you send an email, uh, that's going to go over packets, and it's just going to say, okay, we're going to take the first chunk of bytes, put a header on it, and we're going to send it, and it's just going to be data, right? And so that's being encrypted at an application level. Any application that goes over the network is responsible for encrypting and decrypting the data, right? And so it's the programmer's or the application developer's responsibility. Network encryption doesn't care what the application is doing. When you try to send data over the network, it encrypts every packet and then sends that and then decrypts the packet on the other end. And that way, if you are lazy or don't care about security and you don't encrypt your data, you still benefit from that network-wide protection. And so you might have seen SSL or the little lock icon on your web browser. That is somewhere network-side encryption. That doesn't run on the firmware level, but a server will get a certificate which a company says, this, this company or this website is not a hacker. It's not trying to steal your data. We They paid us money and we think they're cool and good. So we'll give them a series of keys. And then what they'll do is when you go to the website, they'll send what's called a public key to you. And then everything you send to them, you encrypt with your public key. And they have the private key, which is private because you don't share it. And they'll take the incoming packets, encrypt it, or decrypt it with their private key, and then they can use it as just standard data. And it's that way, like, if I'm on my laptop on a banking website in my house and say, like, I'm having a party and I have to check my bank balance during the party, someone who's on my Wi-Fi uh, before SSL could have an app or have a program open that sees all the traffic that goes through my router, and they could say, oh, this, this information is going to a bank website. Take that, and then unless it's encrypted by the program or your web browser or whatever, they could get my username, password, details about my bank account. With SSL, before the data leaves my laptop or my phone and goes to my router and then the public internet and all that, it's encrypted. Uh, so that's kind of the middle layer. Firmware is the actual hardware and routing hardware just doing that um, encryption, right? Because they're going to be running their own network, their own ground stations, Every packet gets encrypted by pretty much like hardware level stuff that gets sent over the network. It comes back to another ground station and then gets decrypted. And so it's no matter what gets sent, no matter what the uh, protocol is, no matter what the application is, your data is secure. And once it hits the Starlink network or any secured network, there's no way for them to pick it, pick a packet or pick a bunch of packets and decode them. It's completely, completely secure. Uh, obviously, encryption, all encryption eventually falls. Right. So, uh, so the difference between hardware, firmware, and software is like software is application side, hardware is like the physical components, and firmware is just like... The well, the hardware and firmware will work together. Right. So like, you might have a dedicated chip that can solve 
uh, what's called SHA-512, which is just a mathematical thing that people use for encryption. Uh, and the firmware just says, whenever we get a bunch of bytes coming into this computer, encrypt it using this method and then pass it on versus what's called a network encryption SSL where the two computers before they send data over the network are doing encryption. So it's all about how there's what's called the networking stack, how high or low on the networking stack encryption occurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and firmware level encryption is pretty close to the bottom. And so it's it's even below SSL. So that makes it, I guess, more secure and Oh, but it can still be updated, like you said. So, like, is that the most secure you can get, I guess, is is the firmware level, at least for this application? I mean, it's not the most secure, because you can do, like, level zero. So, like, there's there's still ones and zeros, either encoded in lights or radio waves or whatever. Um, so, like, there's got to be ways of encrypting that or preventing you, uh, people from spying on that. Uh, but it's very, very secure, and it's going to be a level of security that the average consumer doesn't have right now. Is there anything else you want to say about Starlink before we move on? Well, let's just make us hate SpaceX as another ISP. (laughs) As long as they don't... I mean, hopefully they'll be better than my current internet service provider. And before they're bought by Comcast. Well, I think there's a reason why they named it Starlink and didn't just go with SpaceX Internet. Because then that way, if it tanks... (laughs) <laughs> they can just cut some ties. I think it's super interesting that from like two tweets and maybe like and the FCC information from when they have that the SpaceX is required to put out in order to launch these satellites and request permission to do this constellation. Like we can get so much technical insights. That that's just amazing to me. And that we could spend roughly 30 minutes talking about it from two tweets. I know, right? Okay, next topic. So these are the issues of space where space is hard and we make mistakes. Yeah. We talked about this in the past. Ariane 5 had an anomaly in a recent launch. On um, we, we talked about this where um, during the launch, the engineers um, you know, noticed that... that they lost contact with the satellite or noticed that it was not on the trajectory they expected, but it still delivered the payload. And we, we were worried about, um, you know, James Webb is going to arrive in Ariane 5, and we talked about these implications of what happens when your most stable launch platform has a uh, failure or anomaly and all this stuff. But now we find out um, what Ariane space knows and what what went wrong. Yeah, so here is the press release that's on the official ESA website. Um, so as stated in the Arian Space press release, which is the company that builds Arian 5, uh, on 20, 23rd of February, the direct cause of the trajectory deviation on the 25th of January was an incorrect value provided to the launcher's two inertial measurement units. Given the special requirements of this mission, the azimuth required for the IMU alignment was 70 degrees, but the usual value for geostationary transfer orbit missions of 90 degrees was erroneously used instead. The difference led to the 20 degree shift to the south in the trajectory from the first seconds of flight. 
The underlying reasons for the direct cause have been clearly identified, a need to strengthen the processes for establishing, verifying, and approving the specific operational procedures involving the IMU reference frame. Well, I have two comments on this. One, a comment and a question. The comment is, you had one job. Or maybe this isn't one of those situations where you only had one job, but you had one job and you did it wrong. Um, but the the question, though, is, is this evidence that we should be trying to automate some of these processes? Oh, I had another question, too. And what does, what does that mean by the incorrect value was provided to the IMU? Does that mean during calibration they gave it the wrong target destination? Someone typed a, a 90 instead of a 70. 20 degrees computer. is a lot, especially when you're talking about a launch. It's only one number. That's a, I mean, but that it makes a big difference. What if they typed in, like, 10? <laughs> um, yeah. But but what does that mean? So, like, what, during launch, they when they put in the, that, the desired orbit instead of a 90 degree um orbit they typed in 70 like that that's well, basically this, what happened this right? satellite mission was special and that it used 70 usually they launch at 90 following the equator to go to geostationary oh, uh, okay orbit. so i had it backwards okay and so the satellite required a special trajectory and instead of implementing the special trajectory coordinates the team put in the standard trajectory coordinates to answer my own question i think that this is not necessarily evidence that we should be pushing towards automation because at some point the computer has to be told where you're going to go and a human's going to have to do that at some point but they've already kind of outlined what needs to happen which is you need a much better process for checking to make sure that everything's working and that you've put in the right data. So verification and validation needs to happen. Before we get into the roles computers played in this, I want to talk about another issue uh, that happened late last year. Uh, there was a proton launch uh, in the towards the end of 2017 for the Meteor-M satellite. And they were launching from Vochny Cosmodrome, which is a new Russian launch site within the territory of Russia uh, because Baikonur is in Kazakhstan, which was part of the USSR, but now it has to be leased and Russian material has to be transferred across borders. So they built a new spaceport for um, future missions to, re to reduce that reliance on Kazakhstan. And so for this proton launch, they had the satellite, they put the satellite in uh, the launcher and they incorrectly programmed it with the coordinates of Baikonur rather than Vochny. And so when the rocket takes off, it thought it was hundreds of miles uh, away from its wrong... It was, in actuality, hundreds of miles or thousands of miles away from where it thought it was. Uh, and obviously much farther north because Kazakhstan is in southern... used to be in the southern part of USSR. Um, so... To kind of give a quote, Phil, if you want to like rejigger this, the quote covers what I said. Uh, speaking to Russia 24 state TV channel, Rogozin, Dmitry Rogozin is the head of the Russian space program, a famous uh, astronaut trampoline tweeter, uh, said the failure had been caused by human error. The rocket carrying the satellites has been programmed with the wrong coordinates, he said, saying that it had been given bearings to take off from a different cosmodrome 
Baikonur, which Moscow leases from Kazakhstan. The rocket was really programmed as this was taken off from Baikonur, says Rogozin. They didn't get the coordinates right. The rocket was carrying 18 smaller satellites belonging to scientific research and commercial companies from Russia, Norway, Sweden, the U.S., Japan, Canada, and Germany. So this is not a, within the span of six months, this has happened twice now on two different launch providers. Right, so how, how do you fix this? The, the obvious um, solution that uh, I'm sure everyone thinks of is we'll have a second pair of eyes on it, have additional checks and verifications and things, um, which, I mean, there can be problems there, like um, that's more overhead, that's, you know, um, but what I think is interesting to think about is complacency. So rocket science is hard. Launching rockets is the reason why we watch them every time they launch is because, you know, there's a lot going on and a lot that can go wrong. So when rockets are launched regularly, um, and like you mentioned, the 90 degree orbit is the usual, like that's the standard orbit. When there's the one that's different, but you've you know, typed in 90 degrees every single time for the last however many launches. Um, like, there's this sense of, oh, I've done this before. And we've been talking a lot about four rocket launches per year um, than ever before with no end in sight to that trend. Do you think this will become more common than every six months? Um, and, you know, like like you said, you can't always fix this with automation because someone has to tell the computer what the mission is i think when one of these events happen that it really it does spur the organization to do those kinds of verification checks that uh, drew mentioned uh, because that's really the issue right when you have a system there's a, really there's a distinction between computer errors which the computer does something unexpected which to be fair, is really a programming error that happens in the engineering process versus improper inputs, uh, whether that's putting in an IMU upside down during production, which happened on Proton in the past, whether it's typing in the wrong number when you're configuring the rocket. Uh, those are more operational or production issues, right? Uh, and with operational production issues, that really comes down to how disciplined the team is uh, on guaranteeing what you produce is to spec and exact every single time. Uh, so that's always a challenge in manufacturing, whether you're building one or two rockets a year or you're building 50,000 cars a year. Uh, so it's definitely something that is different engineering realms to solve those problems. I think that one potential method, maybe they already do this, so I don't know why this happened, these this one Russian launch and this one ESA launch, but the I think they need to run simulations. They need to run with the data that they've input before they do anything, because um, obviously they do simulations before, uh, well, in in the mission planning phases. But I don't know if they're doing simulations right before launch, and that seems like something. Enter all the data the day before or something, and then uh, run the simulation and make sure that you know, it's going to go to the right So like a hardware-in-the-loop dry run? Like a static fire, but instead of 
turning on the engines, you turn on the computer and let it go. Yeah. Now, of course, there will be issues with that in you need to account for the current atmospheric wind shear or the temperature, the humidity, whatever's happening at that time. But something like this. I mean, this is launching, putting in the coordinates of the wrong cosmodrome or putting in the wrong inclination. That's pretty severe and something that can definitely be simulated and checked beforehand. But I think this is a good wake-up call, both of these, although you would think that the first one would have been a good wake-up call before the Ariane 5 anomaly. In the actual um, statement from ESA, the ESA Inspector General, uh, Tony Toker Nielsen, uh, mentions that the general plan is to improve processes and end-to-end verification, in particular of the few parameters that are not verified because of their nature during the test on the functional simulator before each launch. Hmm. So it looks like their current test setup wasn't able to test these few items, and they had made the risk assessment of, we test 90% of the code and the setups to launch, either this is too difficult or it's designed in a way that makes it impossible, let's just skip that. And now that has to yeah. be reevaluated. Mm -hmm. When we were researching this, um, speaking of... Um computer processing errors and, and stuff on Ariane 5. TJ, you posted, um, you, you shared with us a video of a test flight for Ariane 5 in which, the, this is 1996, um, 30 seconds, 40 seconds into launch, the rocket turned sideways and it, you know, evaporated basically, just like my Kerbal Space Program rockets do. Um, but the reason for it was the flight computer took a 64-bit floating-point number, which is decimal number with lots of precision, crammed it into a 16-bit integer value, which is, you know, it's it's an integer. It's not even a decimal at that point. And the flight computer was like, oh, man, I'm going the complete wrong direction. It pulled a right-hand turn, and the atmospheric forces on it and stuff just ripped it apart. Um, so, I mean, that's an example of getting the software wrong and how one conversion, you know, this is similar to the conversion from inches to centimeters and stuff that, uh, ruined a Mars probe. Like, so is there anything else you'd want to add about how we can look at these past examples and, and make ourselves better for the future? This seems like another risk assessment because i think the wikipedia article that we read on this talks about the fact that this was software that was brought in from arian 4 which is a huge cost saving you don't need to write a whole bunch of new software um but clearly it, it wasn't good enough um, this makes me think of other failures like i feel like when you're, you're talking about a 16 bit going or a 64 going to a 16 or something like that or reaching uh, a point where the numbers flip I just think of in Civ when Gandhi decides to nuke everyone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the reason for that bug where Gandhi is so peaceful and old DOS computers didn't have negative numbers. It just, after it went down to zero, went back up to 255. So he went so peaceful that it it went below zero, which means it went to 255 aggression and he was warmonger. So... That's a, that's a fun example. I didn't hadn't thought about it that way before. Let's hope rockets don't go super aggressive. 
<laughs> the reason I brought this up is just a comparison between like a screw up in the engineering process where you write code that either you don't test correctly or doesn't do what it's intended to do. So that's a flaw in the vehicle versus a flaw in the person running the rocket or building the rocket. Uh, because there's all it takes is one number uh, to get slammed into another and have that have that issue. And to reiterate, that is old software that was on Arian 4 that was just brought over to Arian 5, and the actual code wasn't even needed. It was just included. And when that code uh, was inadvertently triggered, it brought the whole system down when, like, it, it was doing no practical purpose on the vehicle. So uh, it's just another one of those things of space is hard, whether it's designing the rockets or launching the rockets. And, you know, it's important not to get complacent uh, during at all during the process. And, you know, we've talked a lot about autonomous uh, spacecraft. We've talked about autonomous rockets and autonomous launch procedures things like that, as we put more trust in the software, we minimize the number of inputs that humans can do, which has a benefit, um, but it also means that we need to make sure those those inputs are correct. Uh, and if we have a completely closed system, which is still uh, years and years away, that the code that's in that closed system is rigorously tested for these edge cases. But you mentioned that space is hard, which we've said on so many podcasts, but it's not just rockets that are hard. Um, if we look at satellites or space telescopes, in this case, we have another example of why space can be hard. Um, so, Phil, do you want to talk about James Webb and what's happened there? I mean, do I want to? No. Do we need to? Yes. James Webb has another delay. They're eating into um, the reserves. So... James Webb Space Telescope, super complicated. We all know this. Super behind schedule. We all know this. Um, they've been given kind of like a buffer. It's it's called schedule of reserve. Um, you know, because slips happen, engineering processes, like we just mentioned, these, these things happen, and we know this. But now, um, during some um, deployment tests of... James Webb Sunshield, which we've discussed in the past, a big umbrella thing that helps cool the instruments. Um, there was some problem with it uh, during testing. And, quote unquote, this is uh, reading from a spacenews.com article, quoting, after taking into account some schedule efficiencies, the GAO, what's the GAO stand for? Government Accountability go Office. After taking into account some schedule efficiencies, the government the government accountability office said that James Webb has 1.5 months of schedule reserve left. And so, like, given how much is left in terms of getting uh, James Webb prepped for flight, um, they're probably going to eat into that even more. And it's looking like James Webb is going to be cutting it down to the wire in terms of their uh, schedule and funding reserves before launch. The overall takeaway is with 
more than a year of work left with just 1.5 months of schedule slip is that that buffer is going to be eaten up and they're not going to hit that launch date. And the, a point to consider is that in 2017, they delayed this launch by five additional months. And so they've given them, they had, they ran on a buffer before, gave themselves five months and they're running out of that buffer again. And on the other side of things, there's a pressure to finish the project in that time frame. And for things like this, you can increase the number of workers to solve problems a little bit faster, engineer problems a little bit faster. Uh, but when you add more workers, you add that per day uh, burn rate, right? Because you're paying all the employees per day uh, increases as well. Okay. And so when the total length of the project increases and the per day cost of the project increases from an employee perspective, uh, you start to go and chew through money towards what's called the James Webb cost cap. Yeah. And I'd like to make a correction. In the past, we've said that the cost cap uh, was $9 billion and that they were currently at $8.8 billion. Actually, the cost cap is $8 billion for the project, and they've been at about seven point eight in the past. But Congress in 2011, after 15 years of the project, had set a hard cap of you can spend no more than $8 billion on this project, um, because it was growing and growing and growing from its original scope. Yeah. Uh, and so now we're inching towards the finish line with launch dates close but still out of reach and work almost done but still out of reach, and they're about to hit that hard cap. And legally, once they hit that hard cap, all work has to stop and there's no more money. And they have to wait for Congress to change the law to allow them to continue. Yeah. So hopefully the fallout from this will be a reevaluation of how these projects are managed. Um, but this isn't the first time that something something that is space related uh, has gone over budget and over time. So maybe nothing will change. But hopefully this will allow reevaluation. We'll get to a a leaner method of producing space systems. Well, I'm I'm sure it has. We James Webb is old, dude. I mean, it's like criticizing your old Windows 2000 machine for doing things independent. Yes, but technology does not reduce cost. Yeah, that's true. Probably increases it. Right. You can, like, if you go for bleeding edge technology, you do a cost. Usually you'll have a cost increase. This entire project is mainly tech development is a huge driver of cost, inventing new technologies that have never flown before. Yeah and just process, right? You have a, a cost plus contract with no incentive to reduce cost. You have every, not every, but work spread across multiple NASA centers where the satellite and components have to be shipped in a clean room environment across thousands of miles yeah. multiple times a year. I mean, that, that's how much this tech like, costs. That's just how much it costs. And I guess the, the question is, the no, it doesn't. Asking... It doesn't cost eight billion dollars. Yeah, they co- it's yeah. The people and the the, the machine cost eight billion dollars. The satellite doesn't cost that much. But is the satellite going to be worth eight billion dollars in advancement in human knowledge and understanding of the universe? That's hard to quantize. Yeah, you can't put a price tag on that. I don't know. I've gotten more than two hundred dollars of an enjoyment out of Kerbal Space Program. I've paid for free software because I want to support the development. Is this going to be one of those missions, and I hope it will be, 
where we're super worried about eight billion dollars with a B or more. But in the end, we can look back and say, you know, that eight billion dollars made a difference in the course of humanity. Well, it's it's one of those things where it's like it's going to be like Hubble, where it was way too expensive for what it was, but then we get we get priceless data and priceless understanding of the universe. Right. Right from this, and yay! But like it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't have to cost eight billion dollars to do this, and it shouldn't. We're way over time on this podcast, and I still want to talk about it, but I'm not an expert, and I don't like. I mean, we're media. We're trying to look at these spacecraft and and these things in space exploration because we're excited about it. We want to see them succeed but we also you know we have to be critical of things when they're going wrong so if you liked this episode subscribe to our rss feed on um, itunes or your podcast catcher of choice um, and recommend it to your friends um looking back through our feed you can check out a ton of episodes over 40 of them uh including interviews with key space people like Corey Bruno, Chris Hadfield, um, or the Center for Computational Relativity and Gravitation from RIT, as well as our recent reactions to Space News and the Falcon Heavy launch. Uh, also, let us know what you think of the show by leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast service of choice, and reach out to us on social media at Twitter at RIT Specs. We'll be back next week with another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology. Thank you. The views expressed in this podcast are of the hosts themselves and do not represent the views or opinions of their employers. How goes it? Ha ha ha. Never again, please. <laughs>